Uh, So this is the last Sunday in the series where we talked about some of the reasons that keep us from sharing our faith with other folks. We've talked about being afraid. We've talked about maybe not having uh, enough uh, uh, wisdom and understanding and right information on, uh, on what to share. This morning, uh, we're going to respond to one more of the statements that was given uh, by a handful of folks when we asked a few weeks ago, what's the reason? A couple of folks that I just don't feel motivated. Uh, I was at a student ministry conference back in 1982. So this is going back a ways. This is my second year in ministry, and I was at a conference in New Orleans, and Tony Campolo, who's a Christian sociologist and author and professor and teacher, was speaking at that conference. And he told a story about getting on a plane after a long weekend where he had taught about six or seven times uh, in a little conference, and he was just exhausted. He had taught the entire week before. Uh, He had had a very busy weekend of teaching. Now he's getting on a plane, heading back to Philadelphia, and then he had to start a whole other week of teaching. So he was just worn out. So as he got on the plane, he said, God, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to look at anybody. I I just, I want some peace and quiet. I need to get some rest. So I'm going to get on this plane. I'm just going to, I'm just going to be quiet. If you want me to talk to somebody about Jesus, you're going to have to make it like over the top clear that that's what I'm supposed to do. Otherwise, I'm just going to try to get on this plane and, and catch a little catnap. So he sits down in the plane. And he says, I look, there's a seat in between uh, me and the other passenger. And I happen to glance over at the other passenger. Now, I don't fly that much, but I can tell you, if you don't want to talk to people, don't look at them, all right? <laughs> as soon as you look at somebody, they think you want to talk to them. So he said he glanced over and there was a woman sitting uh, a chair over, nobody in between. And she looked over him and she had tears streaming down her face. And she said, I don't know anything about God. I need somebody that knows something about God. Can you please, please help me? (laughs) Sometimes we need a little extra motivation, right? I mean, life is busy. Life is demanding. If you're at that stage in your life where you're trying to, you know, you're trying to balance work and you're trying to balance children Uh, and you're trying to balance obligations inside the home and outside of the home, it can be absolutely exhausting, right? I can tell sometimes when you come in and sit down and and your children are in another room, the look on your face of just a little bit of relief for, for a few minutes, right? It just can be very, very tiring. If you're trying to work hard in your profession and move your career along, that can be absolutely exhausting. And to think about putting time on top of that, to be prepared to share the hope that is in you. And thinking about the extra effort that you have to go to to actually learn to share your faith, make sure that you're giving the right information to others. It can can just be sometimes overwhelming and it can sap your motivation. But I've also had conversations with folks who who have literally taken scripture and misused it Uh, so that they wouldn't necessarily feel guilty about their lack of motivation. I've heard people say, well, the Bible says that God is sovereign, right? And that's true. Scripture is very clear that God is sovereign over all of his creation. But then they they come to the wrong conclusion, the inappropriate use of Scripture to say, well, therefore, he's going to save whoever he's going to save, so he doesn't need me. And I get a free pass. And that's not what Scripture says. As we're going to see clearly this morning, as we have seen over and over again on Sunday, Scripture is very clear. Yes, God is sovereign. But he uses us. He uses disciples of Jesus to share his message with others. So if you've ever felt unmotivated, you've come to the right place. Hopefully this morning as we look at God's word. Now, I want to say before we read this scripture out of Matthew's gospel, the the, the net result here is not that people walk away feeling guilty. 
If you walk away feeling worse than when you came in because you feel like God is upset with you and God is angry with you because you're not sharing your faith with other people, you will have missed the lesson entirely. What scripture is going to point us to is the passion of Jesus. It's the compassion of Jesus. It's the activity of Jesus that he just, he is compelled. He can't help himself. He wants to share with others. And what we're looking for this morning is a little piece of that in our lives. As disciples of Jesus, if we could, if we could emulate his passion and his desire, our sharing with others would be filled with joy and would be filled with intentionality, not because we feel guilty if we don't, but because we're astounded by the fact that we have the privilege to do so. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, the very end of that chapter. And then in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Hear the word of God. You can follow along on the screen or, or in your own Bible. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then the first four verses of Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus calling his 12 to himself. He's, 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 he's getting his, his close inner circle of disciples together. And then it says this in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, prayed last week, we are thankful that someone told us about Jesus. For every person in this room who has come to faith in Christ, uh, it is because someone proclaimed and someone prayed for us and someone participated in, in sharing the gospel. Lord, we have sung songs to the effect that we, we, we want a thousand tongues to be able to proclaim your word. We have acknowledged that you are the solid rock upon which we stand, that you are the one who is mighty to save. Yet, Father, that should move us to action, not to inaction. We should be inspired by what we see in the life of Jesus. And as disciples, we should follow him, even though at times it feels fearful, even at times it seems overwhelming. So, Lord, I pray this morning that we're a group of feeble people gathered together with all kinds of challenges. Uh, we may look great on the outside, but, Lord, I know all of our hearts, uh, we struggle, uh, sometimes with, with sin and temptation, other times with uh, discouragement, sometimes with physical health, uh, sometimes with brokenheartedness over family members. Lord, all of that, I'm sure, is represented in this room this morning. And yet you are the healer. You are the Savior. And you not only call us to yourself, but you invite us to be used by you to share that great message with others. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us. Don't let my sins stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. Please forgive me. Please glorify yourself uh, in your message to us this morning and enrich our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon in a sentence this morning uh, is this. Jesus calls his disciples. So if you're one of Jesus' disciples, just put your name in there. Jesus calls his disciples to match his motivation, words, and actions when it comes to sharing the reason for the hope that is within us. 
I want to look at three observations this morning about how Jesus moves us away from complacency and how he moves us towards a passion for sharing with other folks. The first observation I want to make in this text is that Jesus demonstrates or he leads by example with active proclamation. It says Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus, by his, his own life's work, demonstrated a passion for the lost. Jesus is actively preaching the good news of the kingdom. He is seeking out. He is searching with some amount of conviction. You don't go through all the cities and all the villages and teaching in all the synagogues without having some kind of inner drive that compels you to do so. So Jesus isn't just in the big cities and the big metropolitan areas. He's in the little rural countryside towns. He's talking to groups of uh, five or six and 10 or 20, and he's talking to groups of thousands. Why? Because he wants to actively proclaim the good news that the kingdom is coming. So he doesn't sit back and wait for the crowds to come to him. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to plant myself right here, and hopefully word will spread, and eventually people will wander around. Jesus says, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to go find them, and I'm going to be active about that. So I have a, a confession to make. Uh, on Saturday mornings, before I kind of come over here around 8, 30, 9 o'clock and, and finish up my sermon and make sure it's kind of all where it should be, I wake up kind of early, and I, and I do the same thing a lot of Saturday. And I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but I'll, I, this is a safe place, right? I can, I, can, I can share my stuff with you, right? I actually spend about an hour watching bass fishing shows on TV, right? <laughs> That's true. I really do. Now, for the five other fishermen in the room, they're like, well, cool. I do too. What, did you watch the one yesterday where they were fishing for striper bass in the uh, northern Chesapeake Bay? Yes, I did watch that one yesterday. Um, but for the rest of you, you're like, you know, fishing show. Wow, that's like watching paint dry. Well, it's because you don't understand fishing and that's okay. But I, I, I watch it. And what's really uh, amazing now is that it's, there, there's nothing left up to chance anymore. It used to be you kind of go out and go, I hope maybe the fish are over here, maybe the fish are over there, maybe they're biting on this, maybe they're biting on that. These guys have sonar, they have radar, you know, they're driving their boat around the lake and there's a guy looking, you know, and he's watching the land, he's looking at the sonar, he's like, stop, 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 here's where all the fish are, right? They're actively seeking them out. They're not hoping that maybe they bump into them, right? Jesus isn't hoping he happens to bump into a couple of people that might need to hear the message of the kingdom of God. He goes actively to share the gospel. And notice the emotional connection he has with the crowd. He's not doing this out of duty. He's not doing this out of obligation. He's not like, well, I'm the son of God, and that's what I guess I should be doing. So I'd rather be doing something else, but I'll go do it. No. Look at how he connects with folks. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it doesn't say that he had pity, right? Pity is just an emotion, right? Compassion is an emotion attached to an action. If you have compassion, by definition, it means you're going to act on the, the, the feelings that you have to help someone else. So Jesus looks at people and he feels bad about their condition. And what does he do? He shares the gospel with them. He also heals them. He also restores them, but the primary, primary thing he does is he tells them about new life they can have in him. So there's an emotion connected to this. So go back to, to my, my, my silly fishing example, right? When these guys are driving around and you know, they're using their trolling motor and they're slowed down, they're looking for the fish. When they find the fish, right? They find a school of fish. They don't go, 
Oh, there's the fish. Okay, let's start, right? They're like, stop, stop, stop. There it is. Come on, quick, get, get your pole in the water. Get your line in the water. Let's, there's some emotion attached to it, right? And there's Jesus with his emotion right there on his sleeve. He can't wait. He's compelled to share. He's compelled to proclaim because he's found the lost and he wants to bring them home. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? When's the last time I walked out of my, my door of my house praying that God, no matter what else he did today, would put me in the path of someone who needed to hear about Jesus? Do I have kind of like that sonar that is looking constantly so that I can actively proclaim the same message as my Lord? Jesus was active in his proclamation, but he also called us in the context of sharing our faith with others to be active in prayer. Look at verses 37 and 38. It says this, then he said to his disciples as he's looked at the crowds and he's seen the great need, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus seems to emphasize what ought to be obvious to all of us, right? The harvest is plentiful. Uh, That should be very clear to us. There are lots and lots of people in our culture that don't have hope in Christ. They don't have the salvation that Jesus brings. And so when Jesus looks around in the villages and the countryside and the towns and as the crowds are coming to them, he says there are there the need is, is beyond beyond you know scope and measurement almost right. What do you think Jesus sees when he looks at at Kirkwood? What do you think Jesus sees when he looks at at Sunset Hills and Baldwin and Ellisville? What do you think Jesus sees when he looks at Ladue and Clayton and North County and South County? I think what Jesus sees is a harvest that is plentiful. And it's almost as if he's stating the obvious that all of us should know. But when's the last time I thought about Kirkwood, and that happens to be the town where I live, when's the last time I really thought about Kirkwood as a plentiful opportunity for harvest for the kingdom of God? That's a mindset, right? Because the sad truth is that even though Jesus sees this, this truth, the sad truth is that there are more of us without motivation. There are more of us without passion for sharing the kingdom. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Those who are willing to go out and do the work are not enough to accomplish all that needs to be done. John Stott said this about this passage of scripture. We are not lords of the harvest. We are called on to pray. We'll come to that in just a second. Why do we not go Why do we not care? Because we do not pray. The harvest is great. Opportunity knocks. The laborers are few, pitifully few. The emphasis, Jesus emphasizes the obvious, but he also points out the sad truth that there are more of us that lack motivation. So what's the answer? How do you, how do you switch gears? How do you become a person that's not motivated out of guilt or duty or obligation, but out of a a compassion and a passion to see the kingdom of God grow, to see people's lives transformed by new life in Christ? And Jesus makes that very clear. Therefore, stay on that, that same page. Come back for me, if you would, please. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The answer, the response is earnest prayer. Notice how he says, pray 
earnestly, right? When's the last time you prayed earnestly for something? Or when's the last time you just thought about anything with, with the some amount of urgency, with, with some amount of earnestness? So think about maybe when you were a little one. Some of you guys are a little. Think about when that, that one toy that you really want. And you just, you really hoped you got it for your birthday or Christmas. And, and you made sure that everybody around you who might be able to influence the toy giving and receiving, right? It's like, I really want this toy. I, I just, boy, more than anything else, I really got to have this toy, right? Remember maybe when you got a little bit older and you were in, in high school and, and, or college and somebody special kind of caught your eye. And you're like, boy, I, I really want to ask that person out on a date. And you didn't say it like, well, I think maybe I want to go on a date. You know, ah, then I don't, it's not that important. No, you saw that person, you're like, your heart starts pumping, your mouth gets dry, and, and, and you, it's best not to walk up to the person right then and say something because you'll probably mess it up, right? Or remember when you were hoping that somebody would call you and ask you out, they'd, you would, they had caught your eye. But you were going to say, you know, I'm going to wait and see if they reach out to me. Think about when you were just getting started in your, in your career and you had maybe your first opportunity for promotion. Think how badly you wanted that. To make a little bit more money for your family, to advance in your career, to maybe have some new challenges and some new opportunities. Think about it as life goes on now and you get towards my age and older, how you, you don't necessarily look forward to going to the doctor, but you go to the doctor hoping that everything's okay. There's an earnestness about that, right? That's what Jesus says here. There ought to be an earnestness about our prayer. If my prayer is, Lord, I sure hope you save folks, and I'm real busy. I got to get going. Jesus probably said, you know, it'd be better if you just were quiet. <laughs> don't pray something you don't mean, but learn to have an earnest passion for those that don't know me. But there's also good news in this. Who are we praying to? Pray to the Lord of the harvest, harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We're not the Lord of the harvest, and that's really good news. You're not in charge of the harvest. I'm not in charge of the harvest. God, the Father, is responsible. It's his harvest, so we can trust in his good character. We can trust in his compassion. The one who sent the Lord Jesus to the earth to, to live and to die and to be resurrected so that you could have salvation and I could have salvation. His entire intention and in all of that is to bring mankind and humanity to salvation. And so we actively pray that he would do that work and we do so with passion. So not only do we proclaim, not only do we pray, but also this passage shows us that it's on us to be actively participating in growing the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus do? He gets the 12 together and then he sends them out and he gives them instructions as they go. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus clearly is demonstrating his passion for the lost by creating partners in his mission. And if you read in Luke's gospel, Jesus sends them out two by two, right? And so he creates partnerships even within the 12, but his intention is to teach them and to train them by letting them do what he has been doing. So they got to watch him, right? They got to observe him when, when he went town to town, village to village, proclaiming the good news. They were right there with him. And for some amount of time, they just kind of studied and learned and listened. But there came a moment when the teacher said, okay, guys, now it's your turn, right? Now you get to go. And you get to have the same experience as me. And so Jesus demonstrates his passion for the lost by sending out the 12. Think about this for a minute. You couldn't find 12 bigger knuckleheads in the world than these 12. 
You go through this list and you look at a careful description of them. They were a motley crew, but they were the 12 that Jesus picked, which gives me great hope because I'm knucklehead number 13, right? If they're the first 12, I'm right behind them. Jesus uses these common people, these uneducated people, these arrogant people, these pride people, these people that are filled with angst and anger towards most of the people around them. They, they fight amongst themselves all the time. They, they, they listen to Jesus, but they don't quite get it. And at some point, Jesus says, and now you need to go try this, right? I can't say to Jesus, well, I haven't been around you long enough. I haven't caught on enough. I'm not a good enough person yet to share my faith with others. Jesus says, you got to go. You got to practice and learn to follow my example in attitude and words and actions. But also note that in the same message that Jesus is carrying for his disciples. You see these words where he says, don't go among the Gentiles and don't go to any Samaritan village. You read that and say, Jesus is being exclusive. No, Jesus isn't being exclusive. You can't read the rest of the Bible and get that. So that would be a gross misrepresentation of what's happening here. Jesus isn't playing favorites. What Jesus is doing is helping his guys take the first step where it doesn't totally blow them away. So he's, basically what he's saying is, I'm going to send you to familiar territory. I want you to go talk to your families. Go talk to your second cousin that you've been wanting to see. Go talk to people, you know, talk to people that have the same habits of you. The kingdom of God is going to grow well beyond that to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. But the first step is manageable. That's great teaching. That's great coaching. Jesus helps them take a little first step and just get a taste. I remember when I was teaching our youngest son, Jordan, how to skate uh, in the hopes that he would fall in love with hockey uh, the same way I uh, have fallen in love with hockey. Uh, and, and he was actually born here in St. Louis, so he was a little guy. First time I took him to the rink, he was about three years old. And we lived up by Quinney Park at the time. And my day off was Friday. And so I would take Jordan over the rink. We went and got a little pair of skates that were about that big over, played against sports and got them sharpened up and ready to go. And went over to the, uh, went over to the rink on Friday morning when there's like three other people there. There's nobody in this place. Put the skates on him. I said, you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. And then I just threw him out on the ice, right? And I just watched him. And then when he fell down, I laughed at him, right? And then we tried to get up and he fell down again. I would yell at him because he wasn't any good at it, right? That's how I did it. I'm sure you all know that's how I did it, right? Not a chance in the world. That's my boy. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to make sure those first steps are as good as they could possibly be. So we just walk around the lobby with our skates on, right? Because you could, if, if you cannot skate, if you're a person who says, I absolutely cannot skate, you can walk around a rubber padded lobby in skates. It is easy. So here I am with this three-year-old, and we're walking around the lobby, and we're doing in and out between the benches and the chairs. And eventually I say to him, you want to go out on the ice? You want to try and go around the ice? He's like, okay, let's go. So we go on the ice. And I hold one hand and I let him put the other hand up on the, you know, on the dasher board and around the rink we go. And I said, let's do one lap, okay? And he says, yeah, it's great. Let's do one lap. So about 35 minutes later, <laughs> and I don't know, at least 35 falling down and getting back up, right? We completed our lap. And what did I say to him? But I can't believe how bad you are. Of course. Way to go. Way to go. You want to do another lap or you want to get some hot chocolate? Oh, I want some hot chocolate, <laughs> right? So we got off the ice. We got some hot chocolate. I said, let's walk around a couple more times in the lobby. So we walked around a couple more times. I said, now we can go back out or we can go home. He's like, I'm ready to go home. Great. We're done. Go home. Come back next week. What do we do? We just add one more lap. That's all we do. Some hot chocolate. And I think actually some popcorn the next week. The third week we do a third lap, right? The fourth week I said, okay, now this time you get to hold my hand, but you don't get to put your hand on the dashboard. And off we go, right? 
And eventually, after a couple months, the kid's not waiting for me. He's out there zipping around. And they're like, I got to go get some hot chocolate. I'm exhausted here, right? Okay. Because I made sure the first steps were the right ones. Your heavenly father loves you a whole lot more than I love my son. He's not going to throw you out there to the wolves and then laugh at you if you fail. He's not going to make you be the next Billy Graham without ever practicing or ever trying. He's going to give you those opportunities that you can see and you can feel and you can manage because he's gracious and he's kind to his children. And Jesus sends his disciples out, but he does so in a way that allows them some amount of comfort in the process. So how did it turn out? That's a question I want to kind of wrap up with this morning. How did the disciples do? Did it work out okay in their lives? What was the end result? Well, I want to skip ahead to Acts chapter 2. And Peter, who's one of the 12, is now preaching his first sermon ever. His real, on his own, Jesus isn't around anymore. Jesus is ascended to heaven. His first sermon ever. And Jerusalem is packed with visitors from every country. People from all over the globe happen to be in Jerusalem at this particular time. From every nation under heaven. And Peter lifts up his voice and he addresses them. And you can read the entire sermon in uh, Acts chapter 2. It's pretty long, so we're not going to take time of that this morning. But at the end of the sermon, what happened? So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You know, Peter not only was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but it wasn't the first time he had gotten on the bike. And now he's ready. And now, what is he doing? He is actively proclaiming salvation in Jesus. What about active prayer? Well, if you go to chapter 4 of Acts, you'll find that Peter and John are standing in front of the religious leaders of their time. I mean, the, the, the big muckety-mucks. And the big guns are saying, don't you ever talk in the name of Jesus again. And we're going to look first at what they said to them, and then we're going to look at what they said to God. So first they say to these guys, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. That sounds pretty bold, doesn't it? That sounds pretty strong. That sounds like it's not their first time around the rank, but they've, they've done a few laps and now they're fairly confident in what they're saying because they're telling the most powerful people in their community, sorry, friends, we're going to keep doing exactly what we feel like we're supposed to be doing. Then they go home and they close the door, right? And this is what they say to God. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, right? While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did the disciples do? They had learned the lesson of active prayer. They knew that it wasn't their power. They knew it wasn't their strength. They knew that it was more than they could handle. So what did they do? They were as bold as they could be. And then they closed the door and said, God, keep the boldness coming because we can't do it by ourselves. God does not expect you and me and Green Tree Community Church to change St. Louis. That's his job. He calls us to follow him in the process and trust him in the process and participate with him, not only in active proclamation, but also in praying every day that God would do that work in us and through us. Paul, who was not one of the original disciples, but apostles, but became one later on, has this to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about what he learned from Jesus about sharing his faith. 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might also win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel. Paul is actively participating with passion, right? He doesn't say, hey, if I get a chance and I bump into somebody, I might talk to him about Jesus, right? He's saying, whatever crowd I'm in, I will, I will make myself comfortable in that crowd if it means that I can tell somebody about Jesus. That would be like me saying the week before Thanksgiving, before the Turkey Day game, I'll wear black and orange if it means somebody in Webster coming to know Christ for salvation. Ted Winters, you can clap right now if you want to, if that makes you feel better, all right? If you'll wear red and white in Kirkwood while we're talking to people about Jesus, right? There's a passion in Paul's heart that he just, it just comes out of him because Jesus has given him the opportunity to actively participate. And then one other observation on, on how this has ended up for the disciples. I want to come back to one of our two memory verses. The first verse, Peter's writing, Peter's a little bit older now, and he says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. What's happened? The pupil has become the teacher. And he's now passing it on to the next generation who passed it on to the next generation who passed it on to the next generation. And eventually that message has ended up here at Green Tree Community Church in 2017 because that's how God works. God is faithful and he calls us to actively proclaim, to actively pray and to actively participate in sharing the gospel with others. Friends, the term discipleship by definition means active follower or active following. It's difficult for me or for you or for anyone that matter to claim discipleship and remain emotionally and spiritually detached about those who don't know Christ. So if you're here today and like me at times you lack a motivation in your life, what's the application for us this morning? Well, the first thing I think we need to to think about is the fact that this is a spiritual issue. This is not a personality-driven thing. It's not introvert versus extrovert. This this is a spiritual battle taking place in our hearts. If we go to that next slide. And we need to understand it for what it is, right? We need to to confess the fact that we need God to control our lives more than we control our lives. Because when he controls our lives, this really begins to fall into place. But the second thing we need to do, I think, is just taking the baby steps of praying earnestly. If you only did one thing coming out of this sermon, it would be this, in my, in my humble opinion. Take the next month. Don't feel compelled to change anything at all about your life. That's why I said just go about your business. Except this, if you don't do this every day. Get up every morning and pray, Matthew 9, 37 38, and pray passionately for your family. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for the school you attend. Pray for the people with whom you do business. Pray for the partners in the place where you work. But pray for people to know Jesus earnestly. And don't stop praying. It may take you a few minutes, but don't stop praying until it's an earnest prayer. Until you start to see faces and you start to think about names and your heart starts to break by the fact that they don't know Jesus. That's earnest prayer. And then after you do that, just get up and go on with your life, right? Because I know what's going to happen because it happens in my life. God transforms us. He'll do the changing. He'll move us in a very different 
direction. You remember the story we started with Campolo getting on the plane and saying, I'm just kidding, you know, I just, he made the mistake of looking, but I just, I don't want to talk to anybody, right? Lack of motivation. Later on in that same uh, uh, address that he was giving, he talked about uh, what he had learned on that plane. What he learned on that plane was that God doesn't take into consideration whether we're tired or not tired. God's going to make sure his gospel moves forward. He's going to use his people to do that. So Campolo said, I started to look at the world just a little differently. I started to work for opportunities. He says, two years later, I find myself out in Hawaii. And I'm speaking at a conference. And the first day I arrived there, and if you've ever traveled west, you know that however many hours you travel, that's how much earlier you wake up when you go west. So when I go to Hawaii, we visit Katie, I typically will wake up about 4 o'clock in the morning, thinking it's about 7 o'clock in the morning, right? So Campolo wokes up at 3 in the morning because he'd gone from the east coast. Can't sleep, can't go back to sleep. So he says, I'm going to go down the street. I saw a little diner down the street. I'm going to go down there and get some breakfast. So he goes in to get some breakfast. And he's walking in about 3.30 in the morning as the women who have been working the night before the streets of Honolulu are coming in to end their day, right? So they've done their work and they're completed and they were getting together to kind of compare notes and see who made how much. Uh, and they're going to have some breakfast. And Campolo's sitting here. He's the only person in the diner besides this group of women. So he strikes up a conversation with them and he learns about them. He learns about where they've come from. He learns about you know, some of the heartbreaking things that led them to the lives that they had to be in because of the need to keep body and soul together. Some of them single moms trying to take care of children. And as they're walking out, one woman says to them, hey, you know, Margaret, who you were talking to, it's her birthday tomorrow. You know, thinking that he would say, hey, Margaret, happy birthday. So they leave. Same thing happens the next morning. Campolo wakes up, you know, three o'clock in the morning, can't sleep, goes down to the diner and knowing that the gals are going to come in. But this time he has about 30 balloons. He's got a big sheet cake. So it says, happy birthday, Margaret. He's got party hats. And he's got, you know, the things you blow, the little party favors. And they have a blowout party for Margaret. And he buys them all breakfast. And one of the women, obviously, at some point says, me, why, says to him, why would you do this? Why would you care about men don't look at us like this? We're, we're just objects. Why would you do this? He says, it's only because I follow a guy who, more than anything else, if he were here today, would want to make sure Margaret had a birthday party. He died so she could have a real birthday party. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is not enough for us to understand the need. It is not enough for us to say, Lord, please send laborers into your field. Father, if we remain uh, emotionally detached or aloof, we will miss the opportunity to experience your passion, your compassion, your graciousness, and your power. You have called us to active proclamation of the gospel. You have called us to actively pray that we would do just that, And then you call us to come along and to be used by you to tell others the great news of Jesus Christ. Lord, that scares us. It makes us nervous. It, for many of us, is something that we are not accustomed to doing. We like our comfort. Uh, And yet, Lord, I pray that this word would penetrate our hearts. Again, Lord, you're, you're not wanting to make us all feel guilty and an extra burden now to carry. If I don't do this, I'm in trouble. Your goal is to set us free and to allow us to see the glory and the beauty and the joy that comes with being used by you 
to tell others the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you taught your disciples. Thank you that they taught others and that that's come down to us today. Lord Jesus, apply this teaching in each of our lives as you see fit. We pray in your name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, uh, you may remain seated, but I want you to pray along with me, if you would like to, uh, a prayer of confession that, that kind of wraps into this sermon. So you can look on the screen, the words will be there, and if, if you would like to, you don't have to, but if you like to, let's pray together out loud. Lord Jesus, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You were rich, yet for our sake you came poor. Now we who are spiritually bankrupt can be rich in grace and mercy if we place our faith in you. Your table is the perfect picture of active love. You left heaven and came to earth in order to give your life as a ransom for many. Your body broken and your blood spilled on behalf of wretched sinners reminds us how deeply you sacrificed to purchase our salvation. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, when we don't share your passion for this lost world. You have called us to be your witnesses, but too often we remain silent. You have instructed us to make disciples, but instead we make excuses. Erase our apathy, we pray, and replace it with a zeal that compels us to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Strengthen our faith today by your spiritual presence in these elements, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. That's the promise of the Lord's table, uh, that our Lord Jesus is spiritually present in these elements. And just as we take uh, food to uh, be nourished naturally, uh, that as we partake of this meal, the Lord Jesus nourishes our souls. So that's why we always say and believe at Green Tree, this is not our table. It's not Green Tree's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It is not a table of denominations. It is a table of faith. It belongs to the Lord Jesus, not to us. And so we freely uh, welcome all who put their faith in Christ. Uh, the only person that should not participate in communion is a person that doesn't believe in Jesus because it won't be of, of any value to you. Uh, so if you're here this morning and uh, he's not your Savior and he's not your Lord, you're not a disciple of his, we would invite you to pray and, uh, and uh, ask the Lord to speak to you. But please don't feel compelled to go through kind of a religious church activity because you happen to be in church. But for all who call on the name of the Lord, this table is for our spiritual nourishment. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, I'm passing on to you what the Lord Jesus passed on to me. The night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten, he took the cup and when he poured it, he passed it to his disciples and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me once again? Lord Jesus, we proclaim your death on our behalf. We recognize that we have no right to come to this table in our own strength, in our own goodness, with any sense of, of pride. But Lord Jesus, we come as those whom you have invited, broken, sinful people, yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
We come needing your strength. We come confessing our sins. We come as imperfect, but we also come knowing that you have given us your perfection and that we can rest in your grace and mercy. Thank you for providing for your people. May this meal spiritually nurture and strengthen your disciples. We pray in your name. Amen.